Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. Now, this week finds me in Yuba City, California today and tomorrow. And then I'm back home for the remainder of the week before heading out again next week. I'm really excited for next week because after two days of work in North Carolina, my son and I are headed to our very first Formula One race in Montreal. We've recently become F1 fans solely on the backs of the Netflix series, uh, Drive to Survive, which has followed the last four F1 seasons. Now, I've never really been, like growing up, I've never really been much of a, a racing guy, but I have come to find the spectacle of F1 almost irresistible. So Adrian and I are headed to the Canadian Grand Prix in Montreal to get our very first taste of F1, so I'll keep you posted on that. Now, as a result of that, the next episode might be delayed slightly because the next episode is scheduled for June 20th, and that is the day we're also scheduled to fly back from Montreal. Uh, so we'll see how, how things go, but I'll keep you posted. Check out the uh, podcast Twitter feed at Tom Schimmer Pod. Uh, we'll we'll keep you posted on on the status of the next episode. Okay, a few quick announcements uh, as we begin. The upcoming events that you might be interested in, of course, this July, July 18th through 20th, that's the annual conference on assessment and grading. That'll feature myself, Cassandra Erkins, Angie Fries, Garnet Hillman, Tony Reibel, Mandy Stalitz, and Katie White. This coming September, September 21st, 22nd, the Grading from the Inside Out two-day training will be in Long Beach, California. So if you want to join me for that, uh, we'll be in Long Beach in September. And October 24th through 26th in Laval, Quebec, that's the Student Agency Institute. Uh, along with myself, that'll feature Karen Gazeth, Karen Power, Morgan Michael, Katie White, and Andy Hargraves. Uh, all of the information for those three events will be in the show notes. They're available on the Solution Tree website as well. One other conference, of course, is the Teach Better Conference. Uh, the podcast, of course, being part of the Teach Better Network. That's going to be in Akron, Ohio, October 14th and 15th. Again, a ton of great speakers lined up for that. I'll have a link in the show notes for that conference as well. And if you choose to register, use the code SHIMMER22. Uh, you'll get a $25 discount uh, on your registration. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. A uh, big welcome, as always, to new listeners who joined for the first time, and a big thank you uh, to longtime listeners. I, of course, appreciate all of you. Uh, this week, my guest is Andrea Samadhi. Andrea is an author, and she's also the host of the Neuroscience Meets Social Emotional Learning podcast, and that is exactly what we focus on. This is a timely conversation, and I think given recent events, you're going to find her answer to what keeps her up at night quite compelling. And in Assessment Corner, or should I say, Assess That with Tom and Nat, uh, Natalie Vardabasso returns and we spend 15 minutes talking about where leaders, whether leader by title or leader by influence, where leaders should begin if they're tasked with leading a reform effort around assessment and grading. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Andrea Samadhi is coming up. But first, don't at me. But I'm going to open this week by chronicling how my patience and resolve was severely tested this week with some unfortunate travel woes. And I think overall I passed, but I have to tell you that in the 11 years that I've been now a full-time speaker and consultant, this past week was the absolute worst travel experience of my life, probably. Now, let me first be clear on what I'm not doing here, okay? I am not complaining about my life on the road. Look, it's not that there aren't challenges and there it's not that there aren't times where I'm sleep deprived or delayed or whatever. All of that happens, okay? When you spend as much time as I do on the road, you're bound to experience many unexpected things. It just happens. 
But this open is not an attempt to gain any sympathy from you. Okay, on the net, my travel experiences are usually pretty smooth, and the benefits of frequent traveling far outweigh the downsides, and every one of us who travels for a living knows it. That's why I cannot stand, again, you're going to sound, this sounds familiar, these performative posts by people like me on social media when they talk about how rough the travel life is, the whole Oh, you want to travel for a living like me? Well, let me tell you what it's really like. The delays, the late night arrivals, the empty airports, the lost luggage. Just stop it, all right? If it's that rough and that awful, then quit. Do something else. You're credentialed, you're experienced. Do something else. Look, it's not that you can't feel frustrated or tired or angry or whatever, but these performative bullshit posts on social media about how my life isn't as glamorous as you think it is, while you rack up your frequent flyer miles, you get upgraded on first class almost every flight, and you enjoy your second glass of wine in the airport lounge. Spare me the, the woe is me kind of posts, okay? Look, expressing frustration, one thing, and we all experience it, and we're allowed to express that. But the whole look how rough I have it posts are nauseating. So do us all a favor, just stop it. Now, Here's what I am doing here. Like, I'm not asking for your sympathy. I love my job and I love the benefits that come from traveling. So I feel very grateful about my professional life. But here's what I am doing. What I am doing is reflecting on how circumstances in life test us. They test our character. They test our resolve. They test how we treat people. And I honestly cannot recall a time when I was more tested than this past week. Now, let me walk you through it, okay? So fasten your seatbelts. You're about to go on this journey with me, so hang in there. Tuesday, Tuesday of last week, I worked in Deer Valley, uh, Arizona. It was a great day, fabulous weather. The whole part about Deer Valley is just north of Phoenix. Uh, I think technically it's still in Phoenix, but the weather was fabulous. Great day, awesome. That night, flew to Dallas. Uh, I landed about 11.30 p.m. And because it's a uh, two-hour time change to central time, I didn't get to bed till one in the morning. But you know, whatever, that's life on the road. So Wednesday, I get up and my colleague Mandy Stolitz and I meet for breakfast. And we're going to head off to the conference, uh, which we're both speaking at. So we met for breakfast and got in the car and drove off the conference. She and I together did the opening 45-minute keynote. And then each of us did an extended breakout session uh, for each of the two groups, right? I did one group in the morning, one group in the afternoon, and she did the opposite group. After we finished the conference, Mandy and I drove to uh, DFW, to Dallas Airport. Uh, Mandy was heading back to Bloomington Normal, and I was headed to another conference uh, in St. Louis. Now, on our drive, there was a biblical thunderstorm that rolled through Dallas. Now, according to the people I talked to who were at the airport during the storm, they said it lasted about 20 minutes. So we got to the rental car spot. Mandy took her shuttle to Terminal B. I took my uh, shuttle to Terminal C. Uh, I went to grab some dinner because uh, it was a little little bit early dinner, but I knew it'd be a little bit late by the time I arrived in St. Louis. So I want to get some food and and just um, head off for the flight. So while I'm finishing dinner, I get the notification from American Airlines. And I don't normally fly American Airlines. Delta is my airline of choice. American just doesn't have a lot of options coming back to Vancouver unless you're flying to Dallas or uh, to Chicago. So when I I get my notice um, while I'm finishing dinner, uh, it was sunny out and planes were taking off all over the place. uh, But I got the notification that the flight was canceled. So I was a bit perplexed and 
again, I found out later that over 200 flights in total, both uh, flights coming in and flights leaving, were canceled. Um, it felt like a lot for a 20-minute thunderstorm. That's probably a pretty typical event in Dallas. But anyway, uh, it is what it is. Flight was canceled. So I need to rebook. I need to get to St. Louis for tomorrow. I get in line for customer service. And I can tell you with a straight face that this is the longest airport line I have ever been in in my entire life. I got in line at 6.50 p.m. Central Time. Now, when I got in line, I immediately called American Airlines to see if I could rebook over the phone. I thought, well, I got to try both, right? Try customer service, try calling in. When I got on, I got a recording that said the callback time was between 60 and 90 minutes. I thought, okay, well, whatever. I'll wait in line and hopefully they can call me back and I can rebook before I get to customer service. I get the call back in 90 minutes. There are no flights to St. Louis that night and there's no way I can get there for work. I check... Southwest Airlines, because I know they fly out of Love Field in Dallas, and there is a flight late at night, but Love Field is 30 minutes away. But the biggest problem is I've got a checked bag. So they've got my luggage. So until I can get my luggage, I can't go anywhere. And yes, I checked a bag. And I know people who travel a lot say, never check a bag. But guess what, Courtney? I wear a size 46 suit and my shoes are size 13. If I could roll up my outfit into a ball and get it into my carry-on, I would. That would be fantastic. But when I'm gone for a week, I have to check a bag, unless I don't want to bring any clothing. So I don't love checking a bag either, but sometimes you just have to. So spare me the travel tips, Pete, all right? Like, I got it. I understand it, <laughs> okay? All right. Forgive me, but I'm, I'm ranting a bit here. So I get in line at 6.50. I got to customer service at 20 minutes after midnight. That's right. Five and a half hours waiting in line. Now, the one little victory of waiting in line for five and a half hours is that at my age... 54 years old, I did not have to use the restroom for that entire stretch. That's a win. Anyone out there who's around my age or older, you know what I'm talking about. That is a victory. I was actually kind of proud of myself for that one. Um, it's the little things, people, that, uh, that you got to take away. And during my time in line, I think I went through the five stages of grieving. I, I started with denial, like this cannot be happening, right? And then anger. It's like this is bullshit. You know, this this you know this was totally a cost saving measure. They wanted to consolidate flights and save money on fuel, and they called it weather. We all saw the sunshine. Just weather means that they don't have to compensate passengers, so they used weather in as, as an excuse and all that. Then I started bargaining, like I don't care how, I don't know how, just just get me to St. Louis. Then I hit depression. You know, it's like oh my life sucks. And uh, finally, acceptance, it's like, okay, well, I guess I'm not getting to St. Louis, so what's plan B? I, I, I'm, pretty, I'm positive I went through all five stages of grieving, right? Now, all of that happened long before I got to customer service because I certainly had enough time to go through all five of those trains. So, so stages, I should say. Okay, so I get to customer service. Can't get to St. Louis, so please just book me back to Vancouver. Friday was the first option. So I say, can I get my luggage? Can they, can they pull my bag and can I pick it up? And the agent says to me, look, with all the cancellations, honestly, it's going to take four to six hours at least to get your luggage out. Once the new shift comes on at 3.30 in the morning, we should be able to get your bag out by mid to late morning. So I responded by saying, so if I come back around 11 or 12 o'clock tomorrow morning, my bag should be out? The agent says, yes. All right. So I head to my hotel. I booked a hotel while I was in line, uh, probably about four hours into my five and a half hour wait, I thought, I better book a hotel room. Um, 
once I realized there was no way I'm getting to St. Louis, right? So I get to my hotel, I check in, I ask for an extra night now because when I booked, I booked one night, but now I'm not leaving till Friday. They say an extra night, no problem. I'm here till Friday. I'll get my bags tomorrow. Uh, just roll with it, you know, bing, bang, boom, Bob's your uncle. Uh, gotta, gotta roll with the punches. All right, Thursday. I get up at nine o'clock in the morning and I because I didn't get to bed till 2 a.m. So I get up at nine o'clock in the morning. I get a little bit of work done. I shower. I call my lift. Uh, off to DFW to get my bag. I arrive at the baggage desk just after 11 o'clock and I tell them I'm here to pick up my bag. I show them my bag tag. The agent says, your bag has not been requested and it will take hours to get it up here. And I said, well, look, I don't have a vehicle. I don't want to keep coming back guessing. Like, would you call me when it comes up? She's like, no, we won't call you. So I explained what I was told last night and that I can't sit here for hours. So what is my best option? I don't want to go back and forth, Right. So I just, you know, I expressed a little frustration with being told one thing last night and now hearing another. The agent says to me, why don't we just redirect your bag to your new flight to YBR on Friday? I said, fantastic. I'm flying from, from Dallas to Los Angeles, Los Angeles to, to Vancouver. I say, is there a better chance of my bag getting on those flights than me picking it up later? And she said, definitely. Like, what are your new flight numbers? So I gave her the new flight numbers. I showed her my itinerary, the whole thing, um, my locator code. Her fingers feverishly hit the keyboard and she says, okay, done. Your bags will be on your Friday flight. I said, thank you. Um, Whatever. I walked away. I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to wear the same clothes for three days. Uh, Not a big deal. So I head back to the hotel. I hit up CVS for some supplies uh, so I can brush my teeth, shower, et cetera. I do some work, a little bit more work. I watched game one of the NBA finals, uh, grabbed a Subway sandwich and all right, this is my life uh, for Thursday. So I wake up Friday morning. Friday morning, I head to the airport early because I wasn't sure what the lineups would be like because of all those cancellations, but it actually turned out to be not too bad. Now, if you know DFW at all, it's a bit of an atypical airport setup in that in most terminals, baggage claim and departures are on different levels, but at DFW, baggage claim and departures is on the same level. That's not normal, but here's why this matters. I get dropped off and I walk to the TSA pre-check security line, and I happen to pass by the baggage desk. And I walk by and I'm about 20 feet past the desk and it hits me. I think, hmm, maybe I should just double check that my suitcase is going to be on my flight to Los Angeles and then to Vancouver. So I stop by the desk, I hand them my baggage tag, and I ask them to assure me that my suitcase has been redirected. The agent says to me, your suitcase is in St. Louis. And I'm like, what? Why in the world would my suitcase be sent to St. Louis? And the agent says, because that was your original flight on Wednesday. And I'm thinking to myself, I didn't say this, but I'm thinking to myself, I'm aware that my first flight was on Wednesday. You all canceled it. I didn't go to St. Louis and you know it because you canceled my flight. I didn't say that, right? I just sort of said it in a way, I just said it like, I know that was my original flight, but my flight got canceled. So um, I had my bag rerouted to, to the new flight. And the woman at the desk yesterday assured me that that request had been put in. And the agent says, I don't see that request. The first thing for you to do is when you arrive at YVR is put in a request for your bag. And I said to to her, I said, but that would be three o'clock central time. If my bag is in St. Louis, why can't we put in the request now? Look, I need to speak to somebody. Like I, I, I asked to speak to the supervisor because this is three days in a row. I'm getting three different stories about my suitcase. Yes, I said, I need to speak to a supervisor. I felt like such a Karen at that point. But I wasn't ranting and raving. I just said, look, can I talk to a supervisor? I just need to know why I'm being given three different stories on three different days. So I'm trying to remain calm. 
And, and I think I'm doing a pretty good job of it. I mean, I am frustrated. I'm not going to lie. I'm not sitting there in my zen, but I'm definitely frustrated. But I'm trying to keep my composure because this is three different stories on three different days. All right, supervisor arrives and I walk her through the whole thing. Me. Look, I checked the flight schedules, right? So here's what I said to her. I said, there's a 7.30 flight from St. Louis to Chicago and then Chicago to YBR. That flight lands at 12.30. I don't land until 1 p.m. So my suitcase could actually beat me to YVR. Now, what I didn't realize at the time when I was saying that was that on international flights, your suitcase cannot travel ahead of you. But I didn't realize it at the time. It was 5.30 in the morning at that point. There's a full two hours before that flight leaves. So I, look, I know my luggage is not their number one priority, but still, you know, there's enough time. The supervisor says to me, and this is what got me. The supervisor says to me, okay, I put a request in that your suitcase be directed to YBR. In an hour, I'm going to call St. Louis to confirm, and I will call you within an hour to give you an update on what, where the status is. I said, you're going to call me, or are you going to text me? She says, I will call you. All right, fine. Frustrated, yes, but again, trying to maintain perspective on the big picture. I just want my suitcase because I have to leave again on Sunday. As I've told you, I'm in California now, uh, but I have to leave. So I grab a coffee, go through security, grab a coffee, go to my gate, get a little bit more work done uh, before my flight. An hour rolls by, no call from the supervisor. Two hours goes by, 7.30 now. That flight from St. Louis to Chicago is about to leave. There's no chance my suitcase is on that. I get no call from the supervisor. So I go on the app. I track my bags, I type in the number, it still says June 1st, loaded on your flight from DFW, no indication that it's even in St. Louis, no call, I get on my flight to Los Angeles, and I, again, frustration is just building. Now, flying to Los Angeles, there's only a 30-minute layover, So, but if you know LAX, uh, if your connecting flight is in the same terminal, it's actually not that hard, because... LAX has eight terminals, and it's a big airport, plus the international terminal, terminal. Um, but it's actually like a series of, of eight small airports. Uh, international, Tom Bradley is huge, but, but the other air, uh, terminals are quite small, and, and you can get to your connections, right? So my, I check my gates, I arrive at gate 47, I depart at gate 46. It is literally across the hall, so this should be no problem, right? So I get on the plane, the pilot comes on and says, just want to apologize, uh, but maintenance has been called because of a set of uh, seat cushion uh, issues in the back. Uh, so we're going to be delayed for a while. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, of course we're delayed. That's just, why wouldn't we be, <laughs> right? Uh, that seems completely on brand for this week. So now the pilot tells us, updated arrival time, 9.54 a.m. My departure time for my flight from Los Angeles to Vancouver is 10.04. I've got 10 minutes, but it's right across, across the hall. But I'm in row 19, so this is going to be tight. Maintenance is done. We take off. The pilot updates us that we should now land at 9.35. We got the short taxi. So in the end, I probably should make my connection to Vancouver. So we land a little bit later than expected. I get off my plane at 10.01. But in the meantime, the departure of my Vancouver flight is delayed to 10.09. So I sprint to the gate right across the hall. Again, it's not that far. But I still sprinted because I wanted to get there as quickly as possible. And I arrived to a closed door. I missed my connection. Or did I? I asked the gate agent if I missed the connection. She said, nope, this plane is out of service and we're going to be delayed. I'm like, are you, are you kidding me? She said, I'm not sure how long we're, we're going to take as we have to find a new plane. But the new departure time is at noon. I thought, okay, well, fine. 
So that kind of week, great. Um, I'll just hang out, maybe grab an early lunch, something like that, and uh, wait for the new flight at noon. So I head to the gate to board my flight, and at 11.35, you know what's coming, 11.35 that morning on Friday, my flight from L.A. to Vancouver is canceled. Now the good news, I'll probably get back to Vancouver at some point on Friday, but the bad news is my luggage hasn't moved an inch. I check the app when I'm in Los Angeles, nothing has changed. No voicemail from the supervisor, nothing. No no baggage message. No one from DFW has contacted me. No one from St. Louis has, has contacted me. And look, it's it's tough at this point not to feel like I'm just being placated and they just tell you what you want to hear because each new person you talk to is not responsible for the decision you're complaining about. So they have nothing to do with it. I'm telling you, the universe was testing me last week. So at 11.35, my flight to Vancouver is canceled. And I think to myself, all right, that's it. I'm done, okay? But I found the upside of down. If my luggage had accompanied me, then it would have been a much bigger issue. But without my luggage, this is actually an easy problem to solve. I just hopped on the web, booked a flight with WestJet, Uh, from LAX to Vancouver. Now, I'll have to deal with my bags when I get to YVR anyway, so I just hopped on the bus from Tom Bradley, went over to Terminal 2 uh, at LAX, caught my flight on WestJet. Easy for me to do, right? Except I forgot one thing, my mask. The mask mandate is still in effect in Canadian airports and planes, so as I board the gate, the gate agent asks me if I have a mask. (laughs) I'm like, oh, right, my mask, that's in my suitcase. Uh, Because I thought I had plenty of time. So lesson learned. Um, So she gave me an extra mask and and off I went. So I fly to Vancouver. We finally departed at 135, landed at 435, go through customs. I go to baggage claim. I go to the American Airlines uh, baggage desk to make my claim for my luggage. Um, And again, completely on brand, the American Airlines baggage desk is closed. There's no one there. So before leaving passport control, I call American Airlines and they say, press one to have a callback within the next, wait for it, people, you'll get a callback within the next five and a half to six and a half hours. So I press one and off I go home. Now, flash forward Friday evening, no call until I went to bed at 11 o'clock on Friday. I wake up Saturday morning, no missed call from American Airlines. So I call them back. I spend two and a half hours on hold. I finally talk to a live person and she finally processes the bag return. And I now have a file number. I know where a claim has been made. Uh, My bag should be getting to me sometime as we speak. I'll keep you posted. Now, I'm not going to lie. I was incredibly frustrated by this whole situation, but I kept reminding myself that no matter what the circumstances, there is no excuse to be aggressive or abusive in how you speak to people. And I was really frustrated. You can express frustration without being mean or entitled or aggressive. I did see some of that on display, and I have to admit, watching others act in that way helped me maintain my perspective because I did not want to be that guy. And it was a good lesson for me, a good lesson for all of us, to be honest. You know, one of my favorite expressions is this idea that adversity introduces a person to him or herself. It's easy to have balance and perspective and be inspirational when everything is good. It's when life tests you 
that you find out about your true dispositional defaults. Look, I'm not saying my frustration wasn't obvious because it was, you know, as much as I tried to hide my facial expressions, you know, it's impossible in those situations, but I did try. And I think for the most part, I was successful. I tried to separate my frustration with the situation from the person I was speaking with. Because as I said to you earlier, each person I spoke to was not responsible for the previous decision, right? The agent on Wednesday didn't cancel the flights before. The agent on Thursday didn't fail to put in the request. The agent on Friday didn't misinform me on Thursday and so on and so forth, right? It was just, it was just one of those things where it just was, was the, the ripple effect. Maybe that's the genius of the airline model. I don't know. They tell you something and they know you can't come back because you're either through security or it's the next day or someone else is on the shift and who knows. I hope it's not as diabolical as that. And I sure hope those cancellations on Wednesday were not done to save money through consolidating passengers onto flights but and fuel costs and all of that and not having to compensate due to weather. It was a 20-minute storm and the airport never shut down for any extended period of time, so I still have my suspicions, but I sure hope it wasn't that diabolical. But listen, regardless of that, life is going to throw us these tests, and they really do provide us with an opportunity to grow, to gain perspective, or just understand who we are at the core. I'm not complaining because, as I said, the whole complaining about travel as you jet off to another cool city or warm destination is the stuff of privilege and self-indulgence, and it's nauseating. Part of what I love about my job is the travel. And you have to know, you know, when you're on planes as much as I am, something is going to happen, and you just have to deal with it. Yes, I did lose a day of work, and I, you know, look, I'm not happy about that. That's never a good thing. Because I was looking forward to speaking at that conference in St. Louis, but I had no control over the situation, so what am I supposed to do? I will say again that in the 11 years I've been a full-time speaker and consultant, this is hands down the worst travel incident or issue, whatever, that I've ever dealt with. So I'm still way ahead on the plus-minus ledger. I Look, I'm not trying to be overly philosophical here, but in these situations, I try to remind myself that I have to live with myself after the dust has settled on this issue. Allowing the people you interact with, even if you're frustrated, to maintain their dignity by not belittling them. And I look, I saw plenty of that from my fellow passengers, and I, I didn't appreciate it at all. Uh, just making sure that the people you're speaking with maintain their dignity and making sure you maintain yours, that for me is the critical underpinning of how we interact with one another during these types of stressful times. So for me, it's about maintaining perspective and, and trying to maintain, you know, frustration with the situation, sure, but still remembering to treat people uh, with respect. And the other thing that kept me in check the whole time, I was not going to go viral on TikTok. Joining me this week is Andrea Samadhi. Andrea is an author and a teacher originally from Toronto, but now living in Arizona. She has spent the last 26 years working with social emotional learning, students, and education. She is the author of the book, Level Up, a brain-based strategy to skyrocket student success and achievement. And that book uses the latest research to help students increase their learning potential and access those aha moments that make learning memorable. In 2014, Andrea also created the program Level Up that consists of the book, 
and over 60 online lessons and resources. And that was chosen by the Arizona Department of Education for a character and leadership grant to be used in Arizona schools. Andrea is also the host of the podcast, Neuroscience Meets Social Emotional Learning. And that podcast has been listed as one of the best SEL podcasts in 2021 and a top 30 best neuroscience podcasts in 2022. Neuroscience and SEL is why I've invited Andrea here today in the podcast. So Andrea, welcome to the Tom Schumer podcast. Oh, thanks so much. That was a great intro. You sound like a sports <laughs> broadcaster or something, You're like all pumped up, ready to go. Well, I am fired up to, to talk to you because this connection between neuroscience, I appreciate that. Maybe we'll do some sports broadcasting sometime soon. Uh, the connection between neuroscience and SEL is one that has really intrigued me because I think sometimes we underestimate or we, we don't think enough about the connection to the brain and the way the brain develops. Um, so I'm glad you agreed to join me today. And I really want to dig into the whole idea of the connection between neuroscience and SEL. But before we do that, let's start for those who don't know you. Uh, let's start a little bit with your background, your resume. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about your career so far. Sure. Well, it started kind of where in Toronto, you know, I went to teacher's college and was hired by my middle school history teacher for my first teaching position. And, you know, you, you never forget those teachers that had their, their eye on you to kind of help you out along the way. And I thought, oh, this, this guy's great. He's hiring me for my first position. And he gave me this behavioral class that almost killed me. It was like, I thought I, I was barely going to survive day to day, week by week. It was me with these students and this buzzer on the wall. And, uh, and it, it was stressful. And I didn't expect this uh, as a first year teacher. It just turned everything upside down. And, and this guy was actually a, in his spare time, he was a ref for the Canadian Football League. So he was one of those guys who didn't want to disappoint. And, you know, I thought I didn't quit anything. And if there was any of my friends that I asked, you know, is Andrea going to leave her career? Well, everyone would have said no chance. I, I stick through to the very end in everything that I do. But I broke my contract with the Toronto School District. And, uh, it was where I went from there. It was actually, I had a neighbor who worked for a motivational speaker. And after my experience with the buzzer on the wall, I went to work for the speaker and try to infuse myself with positivity and learn some new strategies. And it was here that I saw this speaker working with these skills that we now know are called social emotional skills. But back then there were soft skills or like setting goals and um, having a better attitude, things like this that weren't taken seriously in the classroom. But I watched these 12 teens skyrocket their results. And I just couldn't let it go because I had this classroom of kids that I couldn't impact. And I watched this speaker that didn't have a teaching degree turn them around. And I thought, you know, there's something here to these skills that aren't taught in, this, in the classroom. And, you know, it was just at that moment that I thought this is what I'm meant to do. And I didn't feel bad about breaking my contract. And I went and worked with this speaker, traveled around the U.S., trying to find my place with where I fit here. And it was Columbine, when Columbine happened, that was the instigator for me to move from Toronto to the U.S. to see what else I could do. And it's it's been like a not a very simple path from, you know, teaching degree, quitting, figuring things out, saw SEL, thought this is it. And then I get to Arizona and then September 11th happens and it was brutal li living in a new country. 
I didn't even know where the mailboxes were. Like, they're not like in Canada. I'm like calling my friends in Kentucky going, how do I mail a letter back, back to Toronto? I had no idea. Like all it's, moving to a new country. It's, it's di different. Yeah, for certainly. Sure. Yeah. The, so, uh, the similarities between the countries are, are, are vast, but there are differences and nuances between how we live in Canada and the United States for sure. So okay. you're in the new country. Where do we go from there? So new country, wanting to make a difference. September 11th happens, bam, a, like upside down. And I actually was writing a book at the time. It was in my briefcase and I, I hadn't published it yet, but I had this great idea of what I was going to do for kids before like World Trade Center went down and all this chaos happened. And so from there, I ended up going to work for an educational publisher with these ideas in the back of my head. And I just couldn't let go of them. And I was always trying to infuse them into Pearson's products. Like I would meet with the product development team and say, we really should put these concepts. I don't know what they're called. Castle hadn't come up with their Castle 5 yet. There was no Castle website. It was just me saying to this product development team that had this product for high school students, we really should put these skills into the curriculum. And they're like, well, yeah, I don't know. I was ahead of the game always. It was... I was trying to fit a, a square peg into a round mm -hmm. hole kind of thing. And so I ended up, um, after I left Pearson, I thought I'm going to give this a shot. And I published my book and uh, presented to Arizona Department of Ed for a character leadership grant because there was only at the time one character program. Like if everyone remembers character counts, it was mm -hmm. like all across the US. And so I thought, well, I'm going to create a program, go in and add these SEL skills in. And uh, they chose my program, got in, got grant funding to go in. And it was at that moment that this educator said, I can't use your book. I need you to add neuroscience to this. And I'm thinking, what? Like, I just, you know, got the book published. And he said, you don't have to do this, but I would really like it if you did, because this is going to be the future of education. So if you could get your head around how the brain works, we're going to be on to something. And that's how I wrote Level Up. That was 2014. That went into the schools, got grant funding. And that's really where it all began with neuroscience SEL. I've been trying to spearhead the um, credibility of neuroscience connected to SEL since that time. Right. You used the term um, soft skills earlier that we used to call them soft skills. And I don't know if it's just me, but I, I have this uh, visceral reaction to that term. I, I really loathe that term. Do you feel the same way about that? Because I feel like there's such a reductive kind of dismissive, um, uh, you know, dismissiveness to the idea of soft. There's a connotation there that I just cannot get my head around. And I, I really just bristle at that. Do you, do you feel the same way about that, that term soft skills? For sure, but I don't forget how difficult it was watching SEL get infused into the states. Like I watched the states create their um, their correlations to SEL from the beginning. I watched Castle start up, and it was difficult. Not everyone was on board because of this mindset. You know, they they weren't the the research hadn't paved its path yet. So now we go to Castle's website, we click on the research tab, we can see that these skills now show the 11 point academic gain for students. We know what it's done, but back then it, there, there was no research or at least it wasn't well known. And people still think 
they might have their own impression of what these skills are if they think that there's more validity to, you know, the three R's, the reading, writing, arithmetic, rather than these skills. Right. It, it, it in, in some respects, understandable, but in other respects, kind of stunning that it took us until the 2000s to recognize that learning isn't just a clinical exercise and in acquiring information or knowledge, that there's a human being that does that learning and their emotional and social interactions are, are going to influence their ability to learn one way or the other. Okay, so as we've just been talking about, we, we've seen that SEL efforts over the last number of years have really been focused on you know, that well-being and that improved academic performance. And we've, we've you know, kind of documented that in, in your response. Those are definitely important outcomes. But as I think we want to go in the direction of the neuroscience here, because it goes deeper than that, doesn't it? The, the research seems to indicate that a focus on SEL and, and specifically self-regulation really can impact brain development and the way that our brains sort of evolve. So what specifically happens to the brain as students develop their self-regulatory habits and those default dispositions. Sure, so let's go back to when I was a teacher in the classroom with my behavioral students, like just use that as an example. Back then, no one knew that it was my cortisol increasing, that it was increasing theirs, causing the behavior. So when they were misbehaving, I didn't have these skills. I didn't. Ha I wasn't using self-regulation breathing techniques myself. I was screaming back at them, "Sit down, Hushang." I still remember their names because I yelled at them all the time, you know. Like, and then I would turn around and try and teach something, and then chalk brushes were flying. Like, it was a nightmare and chaos. And it was all how I was handling it. Like, I if you would have told me that, oh, it's all your fault, I would have said, "No, what's wrong with these kids?" and blame them, right? I had didn't have the, the understanding of what my own cortisol was doing. The research wasn't there, but now we know. And so, you know, we can just go back to that. Their brains weren't regulated. And I had behavioral students. I didn't know what happened to them before they got to school. They had really difficult lives. And I'm hearing as, as I'm interviewing people that we've got poverty, we, we've got abuse. And the pandemic magnified this as we went into kids' homes with cameras. There are things that I heard the teachers saw that were like heartbreaking that we didn't see when we're in the classroom because they can hide that and they can come into the classroom and you wonder why their buttons get pushed so quickly. It's because of the fact that every student has to be tr treated differently. They all have different brains. Their wires are brain differently, differently. And then, then I, I started to study Lori Desatel. She's starting to uh, train some of the educators in uh, Butler University Teacher College on understanding how the brain works. And she started quoting Dr. Bruce Perry in a lot of her work. And so I started to study her work and, you know, understanding that um, we've got to calm the students' brains down. So we're talking about self-regulation. Well, they're not going to suddenly calm down. When I was in the classroom with the students trying to work with my character program, I had a difficult uh, school, uh, a school that was high poverty, but they were there to learn and they wanted to learn what I was teaching them. It was just sometimes someone would say something and that the response of the teacher was usually, get out, like get out, uh, Miss Samadhi's teaching, 
get out of the classroom. And then that wasn't the answer because then they miss what we're teaching. And so we've got to teach these kids ways to regulate themselves, which is not the usual reaction. So we created like an amygdala for stage station in this high school class. And the kids thought it was cool to step away and calm their brain. It's just a different way of thinking about it. Like if you think back to 20 years ago, no one ever asked you what brain strategies are you using I bet you you didn't even connect the fact that you exercise to the fact that that's good for your brain. Like we just didn't have that knowledge. And then fast forward to the fact that Dr. Bruce Perry writes this book with Oprah, What Happened to You? It's understanding that every kid's brain is going to be different and they're all going to respond differently. Some kids' buttons might get pushed based on how you look at them or what you say to them or what perfume or cologne you're wearing you could trigger them to burst into a, a, a big uh, explosion in class based on something that you don't know because you don't know what happened to them. And it's all at the brain level. Right. The uh, and listeners, you'll recall that uh, several months ago in the podcast, I, I used that same book, uh, Bruce Perry, Oprah Winfrey, to talk and, and sort of think aloud around what trauma-informed assessment practices might look like uh, in the classroom. And by no means do I consider myself an expert, but doing my own learning about that. Can we go back, though, Andrea, to something you said? Because I, I think some listeners might want some clarification on this. You said that in your history, you recognize that there, you said, I didn't realize it was all my fault. Now, you're not suggesting that students' misbehavior is all the responsibility of the teacher, that, that there is some, obviously the teacher is a massive influence on the context or the culture of the classroom, but where's that line? Where do you see that line? Because the students are human beings. They do make, they have their own brains. They make their own decisions, et cetera. So we're not suggest. I know you're not really suggesting that everything the students do wrong or misbehavior, that all, all that's the responsibility of the teacher, but how, do, can you clarify that for me? Oh, definitely. And that's a good question, because that is something that I recognized from standing in front of the students and then going and looking back. I wouldn't have okay. thought that at the time. I would have thought, like, I've got this classroom and they gave me the, the worst choice of students. You know, the, Mr. Black had it out for me. I wouldn't have thought. But but here's where it was. I know what I was doing. And I know I was boiling up inside. We know we only know what we're thinking. No one else would know. The guy standing next to me would think, oh, Andrea's really got her cool. But it was like my buttons were getting pushed from what the students were, were doing. My blood was boiling. We know when that happens. And I know that, that there's been research from Kimberly Schonert-Reichel, actually in your state, in, the, in your province, in um, British Columbia. She's, uh, yep. she, she's there. And she did a study to show that as the... Uh, educators' cortisol rises, so does the students, and it's like a never-ending cycle. Mm -hmm. And so it, that's where that came from. I know what I was thinking and doing. And there were days that the students were, were great and well-behaved. It was when I was more creative with my lesson plans, and I was really thinking out of the box. But then something would happen. I don't know. It could come out of the blue. One student would be off track, and then I didn't have the skills. I didn't have anything other than stop talking. Mm -hmm. go sit over there or like I did not have any of these strategies to include them and get past it um you know all, all these self-regulation strategies that we can teach them now it, so right. so I just know what I was doing and and for anyone else that's been in front of a difficult class 
you, you only know what, what's going on in your head. No one else knows that. Right, right, for sure. And, and you know, this idea of, I've often thought of, you know, escalations of situations, behavioral escalations, et cetera, like a, like a tennis match where until somebody puts down the racket, the, the, the match is going to continue. It's like, you know, sit in your seat and then they volley back to you and say, no, I don't want to do that. And pretty soon you're back and forth and back and forth until one of us realizes there's certainly, um, I, I would sub- subscribe to the assertion that the adult in the room has a disproportionate proportionate influence on the context and the behavior. I just wanted you to clarify that. I think yeah, it was yeah, important to, to get to that. So I'm also interested in hearing your perspective on this because I think self-regulation is often talked about as this purposeful sort of conscious effortful kind of perspective that you just develop. Yet there is some research that I've read that says that that's only half the story, that our non-conscious, our automatic, our sort of, you know, bottom-up influences, things like genetics or stress hormones, et cetera. They also, and you touched on this, I think a little bit when we talk about trauma, they also play a role in a person's ability to become more self-regulatory. So do you subscribe to what some researchers call this dual process model uh, and if so, what what is the approach that schools can take when supporting students? Should some of those non-conscious influences be negatively affecting a student's development of their self-regulatory skills? What do schools do in that situation when they recognize that some of those non-conscious influences are, are maybe the source of the issue? Definitely. Like, I think the biggest example for this would be um, the, the whole Katrina situation, because they studied the stress of the families after Katrina and uh, to see, you know, how did they, what happened to them after that happened? And they showed that the high level of stress put a lot of those families in a vulnerable situation. So when, when we're looking at our students, we don't know their situations, but we do know from the research that when like a, a bad situation like Katrina happens, students are more vulnerable and at risk for like they 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 follow these families and they track them there's higher levels of substance abuse and issues that that of that nature so they were not as resilient as the students that didn't have a situation like that so when we're looking at our students in the classroom it's it's not easy to know what situations have have happened and so take it like two people could have the same situation happen, like a car accident. One person walks away from the car accident completely fine. The other person goes into a complete depression. Why? Because their brains are wired differently from their life experiences. Mm -hmm. So that's how we have to look at our students. We don't know uh, how someone's going to react to a situation. We just have to now try to build resilient, safe classrooms that offer a predictable environment for our students to feel safe, to grow, and watch these uh, situations where they could feel vulnerable and be aware of what these situations could do for our students that that come in from uh, unstable homes. Is that is that why often the approach is to say we should use we should utilize trauma informed practices with everyone because we simply don't know. And if we do take a trauma informed or, you know, a trauma sensitive approach to teaching to the way we interact with students that the students had have not experienced trauma are no worse off, of course, but that the students who have experienced trauma are supported in almost as a default. Is that is that the rationale behind why that's often talked about as the way to approach schools? 
Well, that that's how I would do it because you okay. really don't know. And then there's the whole genetics epigenetics. We, mm-hmm. we don't know the family history and there's a lot of research showing what what's gone on with our grandparents and prior history can also cause our buttons to be pushed and have unconscious subconscious blocks in 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 our lives so all of this research it's it's fascinating as we can dig into it and so it would just make sense that we treat everyone with with some caution that um, we just don't know yeah we we certainly in canada talk a lot about the intergenerational effects of residential schools. You look at the the history in the United States, uh, uh, racial discrimination. You know uh, all that's gone on. You you I, I don't know that we can ever fully understand the impact it's had on on as you say on genetics in terms of development as 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 students move forward, grow from from childhood into adults, and then again, have their own families and how that impacts the way that they parent and how the school system interacts with them as well. And speaking of that, I think this is an important aspect because we can't, um, as the more I understand about the neuroscience and the connection of SEL or connection to SEL, the the effects of those early disadvantages um, on shaping some of those self-regulation outcomes, whether it's neglect, it's poverty, it's trauma, um, there are those early experiences that schools just have no control over. So when when we're talking about schools uh, supporting students, where's the line between understanding that some students come from that position of SEL disadvantage, if you will, and then schools using that as an excuse? And I, and I hate to sound so harsh about this, but we often hear things like, well, look, what am I supposed to do? We, we get them when they're six years old or we get them when they're in high school. Look, look at the background, look at the family. There's a line where we have to understand where they've come from and how they've grown up and what the environment was like. And then not using that as an excuse for why we've been ineffective or we've underachieved in terms of outcomes. How, how do you see that playing out in schools? Yeah, well, I saw it the most with Oprah when she wrote her book, What Happened to You with Dr. Perry, because she had such a difficult life. Like her parts in the book were like heartbreaking. I'm on the verge of tears reading her part. And then Bruce Perry comes in with the brain. And he said it was on purpose that he wrote the book this way. It was like an ebb and flow almost to soothe the person reading it. So get the shocking truth and then learn how to calm the brain with neuroscience. Shocking truth, calm the brain. And when I was interviewing them, I thought, well, how in the earth did Oprah ever become so successful with, with such a short start to her life and all these experiences? But that's where I think these amazing teachers that see the best in everyone come in. It doesn't matter what your background is. We all have unlimited potential. If you fully believe that about every person, that they have this um, and, and it came out with one of my last interviews, it was all about this, the, the spirit of work, that we have this soul inside of us that's for expansion, and we all have it, and we all have this tremendous power for greatness. And if you can look at every one of your students, no matter where they've come from, they could be the next Facebook creator or the next you just don't know and you don't what their background is. It doesn't matter because Oprah proved that she could get through uh, her difficult life. And I'm sure we could all come up with 30, 40, 50 different famous people like that. And then non-famous people 
And so it would be just not limiting people based on their past, but seeing that we all have equal opportunity for success and incredible things in our life. Yeah. I, you know, I don't, I don't want to suggest that teachers do that extensively. I think that on occasion, you do hear individual teachers or schools or principals, you kind of throw up their hands. But invariably, when you dig a little bit deeper on that, what I find is that the school or the the principal or the teacher that's throwing up their hands and saying, what am I supposed to do, is really not putting any purposeful effort toward the development of those SEL competencies that schools that begin that purposeful effort or that intentionality around helping students develop those competencies, they never seem to be the ones that that leak into that idea of using it as an excuse. They just realize that the student needs more support. They need, they need to be surrounded with, with more attention, more care, more strategy, more fill in the blank of whatever that they need. So I think that's re really important um, to, to also clarify, because I don't want to suggest that schools do that a lot because they don't. Um, but sometimes it can, it can be that excuse or that um, kind of throwing up your hands and just saying, what are we supposed to do? Okay. So I want to finish up the conversation here with implementation and helping, you know, the school community or stakeholders understand the importance of SEL in our schools. I think we touched on this early on, but I want to dig a little bit deeper because still today, in 2022, as far as we have come, some groups of parents in some communities have, have again taken a stand against SEL uh, or anything SEL related or you know any aspect of it because they, they say it's all about the academics, it's all about reading, writing, arithmetic. We don't want to talk about relationships. That's not your job. All, all of those different aspects. So if you were advising a school principal or a superintendent, what are some ways that they can talk about SEL in a way that's accessible so that those hesitant groups of parents might understand more readily why this is important work for the schools to embark on? Sure. I always like to go back to a definition of what it okay. is. Yeah. And the Aspen Institute defined it as every student having access to full and equal opportunity to succeed in life. And so you think about these skills, they're going to help them in school, college, career, and beyond. Mm -hmm. And then I would definitely always point them, just go look at the research from Castle's website that shows the 11-point academic gain, and then understanding what these skills are. I break it down into three parts. There's the social and interpersonal skills like navigating social situations, resolving conflicts, the emotional skills, managing your emotions, and then the academic and cognitive skills and show how they're all combined, mm -hmm. that, that, that you can't have one without the other. They all flow together. And, and I would remind them that, that this is not like, you know, imagining having kids just hold doors open and being courteous. There's so much more to the research that they're showing. And I would show them the reports and the research that's gone into it and how that it's, if you look at it, all state is getting involved because all state now, you know, they want to prevent car accidents for insurance for these kids. And they can show that kids that are studying these skills are less likely to have a car accident and die. And so, you know, that, if you want to go that way, that these skills are life and death. They were teaching them skills that they're going to use now and forever to have a successful life in school and out of school. Yeah, I, I think that connection uh, is important. The research is important. I think the idea of connecting it, you know, not separating the silos of academic achievement and, and um, social emotional competencies, but showing the connection between the two. Because I've often said, and listeners, you'll 
you know, have recalled, longtime listeners have heard me say several times, I don't think it's Maslow before Blooms. I think it's Maslow through Blooms. It's it's that academic link. Um, we've had several guests on the podcast talk about that. Okay, so let's last last piece here. Let's best advice for teachers to ensure. One of the concerns with any sort of effort is that we 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 implement the light version, you know, the idea uh, that it becomes fluffy uh, and we don't really get to the the important sort of substance piece, substantive pieces of it. So how do we as teachers ensure that our SEL efforts don't just de devolve into a fluffy experience and that, you know, something that feels good? We want substance. We want long term impact. What are some of the things as a teacher that I should keep in mind? as I think about helping my students develop these SEL competencies? Well, sure, we always wanna go back to evidence-based, right? Like what's been proven to work and that's the science. When we can connect the science to this, I think that's when we're going to get the results that are beyond the fluff. And anyone who starts to study the science of this, like uh, that's what I noticed with the podcast that it becomes, you get, uh, excited about what you're learning when you're learning something new and then you're seeing it making an impact on yourself and your students it, it it starts to snowball and i think that's where you get past the fluff it's there's no fluff involved when you're going into the brain like we're going into the science of it there's no there's no room for fluff mm -hmm. it's it got straight to understanding what the hippocampus is how does the hippocampus impact memory well what how can we, um, what can we do that harms the hippocampus? Well, we don't get enough sleep. There, it's all science. And so when, and, and that's what this teacher was trying to get me to look at when he was saying, you need to add neuroscience to this. He just wanted me to go beyond where I was before, which I appreciate now looking back all these back then I was like, oh, you know, you, you don't like what I've done, but I can see what he wanted as a, a school administrator. He wanted to move past the fluff and give him something that he could use that that we could prove. Yeah, I think it, it, as you said mentioned earlier, it's beyond just opening doors and and being courteous and and respectful. That is important because rela relationship skills are important and part of the SEL competencies. But uh, it is more than that. And I think you're right. When you dig into the science, the brain development, you you really can't go down the fluffy road with any of this work. Okay, two questions left as we finish up. These are questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Really appreciate your time today, Andrea. This has been a fascinating conversation. Um, um, the first one, you can take this in any direction you want, it does not have to be about SEL, it can be about any, any topic you want, but the question is quite simple. Educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? With kids at home in my house, it's school shootings. Yeah. It's, you know, why I moved to the U.S. in the first place when Columbine happened. Uh, we had just launched a program for kids with that speaker, and we had made these pins um, to raise money and just raise awareness for kids and self-awareness. And I still have these pins in my desk. And there was uh, Daryl Scott, the father of Rachel Scott. She was the first one that was killed in Columbine. And he was speak keynote speaking at this conference in Arizona. And I actually signed up to talk at one of the breakout sessions so I could meet him. And say, you know, this is because of your story. He's got a program for kids in the schools. This is what I'm doing, trying to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just school shootings, kids, their future. We don't want that to ever happen again. That keeps me up for sure. Yeah, that would keep keep everyone up at night. It is interesting that um, you left Canada, came to the United States 
for that reason, when a lot of people would have gone in the other direction and uh, have left the United States and had, would have, if they had the option to move to Canada. Oh. So it's interesting and uh, this year level of commitment to, to addressing that issue. Okay, last question uh, is about success, personal success, professional success. Again, answer in any way that you want. But the question is simple. If a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? Well, this digs back to my time working in the speaking industry because that was why people came to the seminars and why they paid thousands of dollars because success is a puzzle for most people. Like, you know, they just lack something and they're not sure what, what piece am I missing? And it was asked of, in, uh, this was asked of me in one of my job interviews. How do you define success? And so I go back to Earl Nightingale's definition. It's the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. So it's progressive. It takes time. You know, it's not going to, where you're going, where you are now and where you want to go, it's not happening overnight. It's progressive. And it's the realization. So it takes time worthy. It's got to be worthy of you because you're going to trade your life for it. I left Canada, my family to come here and struggle when, you know, the whole September 11th happened. I, I thought a couple of times, well, maybe I should go back and looked up my old department head. He always said he'd hire me back, but I just thought I've got to stick it through because this is a worthy goal. It's something that I want to keep doing. And then ideal, does it fit my identity of who I am? Something that I love, something that when times are difficult and they did get difficult am i going to stick it through and not give up so it's progressive realization of a worthy ideal and to me that's your living success no matter what you're doing i think that is a fantastic definition of success and a fantastic way to close out today listeners you can follow andrea just about anywhere on twitter and instagram the handle is at andrea samadhi uh, and Facebook and LinkedIn as well. Andrea's on Facebook and LinkedIn. Uh, also, Andrea Samadhi on YouTube. Uh, the website is www.achieveit360.com. Uh, and of course, the podcast that re really everyone should subscribe to is called Neuroscience Meets Social Emotional Learning. Well, I'll have links for all of those uh, social media accounts, websites, and the podcast in the show notes. Andrea, thanks so much for your time today. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me, Tom. Thank you. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Okay, assess that with Tom and Nat. Welcome back, Natalie. Thanks, Tom. Great to have you back. Um, ready to dig into another assessment conversation. Again, as always, we'll put 15 minutes on the clock. Yeah. Uh, we'll start that right now. Natalie, what's on your mind this week? Uh, well, as you know, I left my job two weeks ago. So I've been reflecting deeply about my journey and where it started, where it ended. And I've been thinking a lot about beginnings and the idea that assessment's kind of having a moment right now. Remember I was doing all that research on YouTube data the other day, cause you know, I'm right. cool like that and who doesn't and <laughs> assessment and the phrase formative assessment have this huge spike in searches over the last little while. So needless to say, I think there's a ton of schools and districts that are going to be going down the pathway of wanting to grow their assessment and grading practices, which begs a question, which I think is an important one to dig into a bit here. If you're a leader, and that could be a school leader, like a principal, or it could be a learning leader or an instructional coach, but you've been tasked 
with growing your school's assessment and grading practices, which is a huge ask. Right. Where would you have them start? And no, you are not allowed to answer book Tom Shimmer. You can go first. <laughs> I, no, no, that's definitely not what I would say. Um, I, I, I think, you know, one of the things I would think about is there's a bit of an inventory that needs to be taken in that, um, you know, there is a level of assessment literacy within most teachers. And I would want to find out, you know, levels of strength, areas that need strengthening. I would want to sort of take an indication of where people are, their comfort level. Do we all have a common understanding of terminology before we sort of embarked on, on our journey? Uh, once, once we'd done that, once we'd kind of taken, uh, taken inventory and assuming that we were not f- further ahead in certain places, I think I would begin with a, with clarity around what we mean by certain terms and what we mean by certain mm. um, actions. I think, I think as, as simple as it is, the formative and summative divide Uh, and maybe not so much a divide, but the definition of formative and summative assessment are really important to understand because it's once you misunderstand those terms Mm -hmm. and, and, and what it means to use evidence. And that's the key, right? Is to make sure that, that, that I would probably begin with an overarching idea that assessment is about using the information. Assessment is not about doing it. It's not Mm -hmm. about gathering. It's not about data collection, but that formative assessment is formative when it's used formatively, that, that an assessment is Mm -hmm. not formative just because you label it. So, and, and summative is about how I use the information though. You can use summative evidence formatively, I suppose, but, but ultimately I would begin with a, with establishing some clarity and consistency and alignment with what we mean when we say certain things so that once we understand those, those key terms and those key actions, Mm -hmm. then we can build from there. Yes. And (laughs) that's absolutely when I think back on my journey where we started, but a step that came even before that, which isn't even about assessment at all, which is kind of interesting, is a structural decision that was made at my school, which I think actually had so much value when I see where it ended up, Mm -hmm. which was to uh, put together a committee or a coalition, if you will. I'd rather call it a coalition for change. Mm -hmm. But, you know, being the person who was an instructional coach at the time, and I was given this, this goal, I was completely overwhelmed. But the idea of turning to the whole community and saying, hey, this is the situation, who wants to figure this out with me? And at first it was only like 12 people across the school who joined, but then as time went on, it got to the point that now it's like 45 people and three subcommittees, which is like Mm -hmm. three quarters of the teaching staff. But I think just a structural decision to build a team to say, let's dig into this together. And one of our first decisions was we need to get clear on the terms we're using because when everyone says formative assessment, they're talking about completely different things. So let's start there. Um, but it all naturally kind of fed from there. And it was a team digging into it together because assessment, you say this often, and I repeat it, is ubiquitous and it crosses every single discipline and area that teachers work in. So no one person with their unique background has all the answers because there's so many nuances to each uh, discipline that you need a team approach to really figure out the next steps mm-hmm. for everybody. Yeah, that guiding coalition, um, it reminds me, of course, of John Cotter's eight steps for transforming mm-hmm. your organization. And in fact, guiding coalition is step two, because step one is creating a sense of urgency. Yeah. Now, something I've often said with when it comes to assessment and also in schools, because I think in the private sector, it's very easy for a CEO or or a you know a president or whatever in, in, a, in, mm-hmm. in private industry to just sort of say, this is what we're doing. And if you don't like it, find another place to work. More mm-hmm. often than not in education, it doesn't really work that way. You can't just demand... 
especially in public school situations, unionized environments, and nor do we want to do that. Like we don't want mm-hmm. to demand that people change. So for me, the the the, the balance with with the Cotter model is. Um, urgency for the ideas, but patience for people, patience with mm. people in uh, mm-hmm. helping them understand. And then once we have that guiding coalition, I like the idea of of that team doing the heavy lifting and doing some of the exploration and and never doing things yeah. in absence of the knowledge of the rest of the faculty, but doing some of the uh, early sort of culling of, of research, kind of understanding this is the direction we want to go, or at least suggesting that that's the direction we go. And I'm mm-hmm. sure having that, it's out, you know, I do know that your guiding coalition coalition, you know, grew and certainly became mm-hmm. uh, quite large. But I think it's a mm-hmm. good point about uh, starting that coalition to create a team that that's going to do some of that heavy lifting on behalf of the faculty. Mm-hmm. And on your point about urgency, which is such a good point, there are many people I've talked to who are in this situation where they're like, well, the urgency is that my district office has decided it has to happen next year. So we, right. <laughs> here we are, we have to figure it out. And I would argue that even in those instances, Mm-hmm. There is still the opportunity to rally together. And maybe that is the urgency that everybody mm-hmm. needs to say, okay, well, we'd rather not be thrown into a brand new grading system next year with absolutely no preparation. So how can we dig in and figure this out? But that group to come together and work out some of the details, like what is our policy around homework or what is our a practice with reassessment or what might uh, we, how might we make sense of the proficiency scale that's going to be mm-hmm. dictated down to us from district office that yeah. work through a group of people that then can be shared and be a constant conversation with the wider faculty, like you said, is so important. Yeah. And if your guiding coalition is a cross section of your faculty, right, you have mm-hmm. different departments represented, different grade levels, different, you know, represented, uh, you know, different specialty areas represented, then you really can balance out the conversation to, to create some alignment through different, you know, departments and across grade levels. Because if you don't have that cross section, then you end up with, um, you know, a small group of people who may have a niche or, you know, sort of a, mm. a, a singular focus. And it doesn't really expand to the rest of the faculty. And they, the rest of the faculty doesn't feel represented. They don't feel yeah. heard. They don't feel as though their their needs are, are being met. So being very strategic mm-hmm. about that guiding coalition is really important. I remember when we put together some of our teams in some of the schools I worked in way back in the day, of course, you know, we would call for volunteers. Uh, we would say, hey, anybody interested in exploring assessment grading. We want to put a group of people together to talk about this, but we would go recruit certain people because I think one of the important parts about the guiding coalition is you have people in that guiding coalition who have street cred. You've got people who are influential, people who, and not from a manipulation perspective, but Mm -hmm. when you have people on that guiding coalition who you know the rest of the faculty will look to and, and simply be interested or at least explore a topic simply because that person said so, because they have that kind of credibility on staff. I think that's important that it not all be, you can have a cross section of your faculty, but it may be all teachers in their first five years, or, you know, you, you, you have to balance this out and have some of that experience and some of those, some of those people that do have the credibility that when they stand up in front of a faculty and they say, I'm rethinking how I handle homework or I'm rethinking Mm -hmm. my reassessment policy. And they look at this person and they say, that person is one of the most effective teachers on our staff. If they're willing to consider Mm -hmm. changing their practices, who am I not to be open to that conversation? So Mm -hmm. from a strategic, not manipulative perspective, you want to be mindful about recruiting people to be a part of that coalition. Which means being open-minded to 
you might have people who join who are not, they don't appear open to the ideas at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And instead of being like, oh gosh, how am I going to manage this person? They're going to come in and just completely, you know, abort the conversations. It was always those people, the ones who kind of seemed the most resistant in the conversations at the beginning that were that person you just described. The person who got up a year later in front of all of their colleagues to say, we all know that I love a zero, but let me tell you about what I did this year and how much it transformed my practice. And it is like, once that happens, you're past the tipping point. It'll honestly just take on a life of its own. That is such an important point because I don't know how many times I've seen that happen where and again, I'm not talking about the absolute blockers. You know, there are some mm-hmm. people who say, look, they fold up their arms and and they'll just be a contrarian or they just, that's a small minority of people. Like that's a very small percentage of, of people. Yeah. But when you talk about the healthy skeptics, the ones mm-hmm. who you want to invite them to the conversation, because I know Michael Fullen talks, talked a lot about this mm-hmm. and still talks about this. The idea that when you invite those people to the conversation first, they may have ideas or a perspective that we haven't thought of, right? That group mm-hmm. think can kind of emerge. And the other thing is that they are critical to the success of an implementation. So if they're not part of the conversation, they are likely to be undermining the effort outside of that circle. So inviting them, having them go to the conferences, having them be a part of it, even if they're not part of the guided coalition, going to them on the sideline and basically saying, you know, look, would you mind if we bounced a few ideas off of you or every once in a while we send something your way because we really would appreciate if they're not interested in being a part of the team, send them something or say, this is what we talked about. What's your perspective on that? Invite them into the conversation because I think then you can start to, again, have their good ideas come to the table, but also make them feel as though they're not being alienated or isolated Mm -hmm. away from the coalition. Mm -hmm. And on the note of recruiting and inviting strategically, we used a strategy called action teams as we got further along. And we realized like we didn't have enough of the diversity for the depth of outcomes design that we wanted to do. And I realized something after it happened a few times that in the educational space, teachers often say, I don't feel seen for what I do. I don't feel valued. And you'll often hear people add the phrase to the end of their sentence, like, oh, but no one cares what I think. Because sometimes we all get so busy and stuck in our little bubbles that people are truly drowning in like a feeling of insignificance and that no matter how hard they work, it doesn't matter. There is so much power in sitting down one-on-one with someone saying, this is what we're thinking of doing. We really need you and here's why. And list specific things about who they are and what they do in their practice. Like, I can't even tell you what a transformation in culture it was doing these things called action teams, which the work was very complex and not that sexy. Like it was about really just unpacking the curricular outcomes and creating learning progressions and reporting outcomes and all that. But It was the invitation and the honoring of the diversity of expertise and bringing those people into a room together that I think created this cultural shift that made all the assessment work just a part of a bigger culture of inclusion and Mm -hmm. honoring diversity of practice. Yeah, I think that's a a, a great point. And, you know, we, we, of course, are saying all of this under the idea that this be authentic, mm-hmm. uh, strategic and authentic. And, and But sometimes people end up feeling isolated or alienated. It's not intentional. It's not that the Guiding Coalition is trying to isolate. We get we get into the work, we start getting focused and we get energized by it and we, we, we forget. So yeah. being strategic means we are constantly 
checking ourselves and making sure that we are bringing others into the conversation, into the fold. I think it's important that people remind, remind themselves that the Guiding Coalition is not the decision-making body. It's not the group that necessarily has, you know, the authority to make decisions that this is what we're doing as a faculty. And even though there's other faculty members that are not part of that, but it is a, a recommendation. It's a team that makes recommendations, I should say, a recommending team mm-hmm. that says, here's what we're thinking. You know, what is your perspective on that? But I love that idea of those action teams. So, specifically mm-hmm. what did they look like were they were they small teams like small groups mm-hmm. okay and how'd that so, work so yeah so what we did is we um decided to divide by discipline so there was a uh, a small k to 3 group and then we were looking at a 4 to 8 progression if you will so mm-hmm. we had uh four different teams language arts social studies math and science and they were made up of about 5 to 6 educators a couple of them were the learning coaches or the instructional coaches from our learning team that were working in either literacy or numeracy. And then we had selected a diversity of teachers. So we made sure there was one from each grade, first of all, or if not from each grade, they had taught multiple grades many times and were very confident with them. But we always made sure we had a new teacher in there too. So we weren't just getting the folks from staff that had been teaching there for 15 years and had a very strong opinion about you know what our kids need. And you'll hear that phrase a lot, but also someone with a totally fresh perspective right out of university that would nudge and challenge the conversation a bit and just made sure we had equal representation from all sides. And then the actual logistics of them is we recommended <laughs> that they needed three full days, went to the admin, said, this is why we're doing it. This is what it will look like over those three days. This is what the product will be at the end of it. So we actually got sub coverage for all of those teachers to have three full consecutive days. And I mostly just existed as the facilitator to Mm -hmm. move everybody through forming, storming, norming and performing because there was storming every single time. As much as you would like to think there wouldn't be, there's always uh, philosophical debates that happen in these situations. And by the end of it, we had created... um, we called them power outcomes. They were like our priority standards. So we had five Mm -hmm. to six power outcomes uh, across, for instance, language arts, four, five, six, seven, eight. And then under each of those was very specific outcomes to show a a progression in complexity from four through eight. And we had done that by like this painstaking process of highlighting the curriculum and actually matching every single specific outcome somewhere, Mm -hmm. realizing how much redundancies there were, and then simplifying the language as much as possible. Right, right. I mean, that is that is important work and certainly detailed work, and it does take some time to mm-hmm. put all of that together. So as we finish up here, Nat, as our time comes to a close, it's interesting you, um, you brought up the idea of philosophical debates. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking that maybe next time we come back and we talk a little bit about where where is there some philosophical positions that are afforded to us in assessment and where are the non-negotiables? Because I think that mm-hmm. sometimes we can get caught up in the philosophical debates and yet there are some principles, you know, PLE principles of assessment that we kind of have to adhere to if we want to yeah. ensure that how we're assessing is accurate. So mm-hmm. next time let's pick up on that, that idea of, of philosophical debates versus non-negotiables and, uh, and you and I can compare notes on what we think uh, is that, but again, uh, Thanks for hanging out today, Nat. Uh, look oh, forward to anytime. next time. Anytime. See you next week. That's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. You can also email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. If you've got questions for Natalie and I on Assess That with Tom and Nat, 
this summer, or if you have any suggestions for the podcast or feedback for me about the podcast, any suggestions for guests, anything like that, would love to hear from you. Also, a reminder to check the show notes for the links for all the upcoming professional learning events this summer and this fall. The next episode will be in and around June 20th in two weeks. I mentioned that in the opening. My guest will be Zaretta Hammond, who is the author of Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain, so you do not want to miss that conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, but of course a rating or review on any platform that helps grow the podcast's reach would be most appreciated. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or spread on social media. I would really, really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.